Welcome to Jerry and Marty Talk Footy, but not in ways you'd expect. It's the world's only podcast that takes an academic look at various aspects of soccer. I'm Jerry, and he's Marty. Hello, I'm the intellectual, and he's the... Uh, what are you exactly? Um, I'm immune to your sarcasm, Marty. So, we're part of the famous soccer studies school here at South Mims U, and we like to take oblique and often surprising looks at the sport we love so much. We're world-renowned for that. World-renowned? Are you sure? Name me one other academic soccer school, Marty, that has the depth of expertise that we can offer. Well, there's a bloke in North Mims who's got a blog on the history of football that's actually really popular. North Mims? We never utter those words here at the South Mims U podcast. North Mims are our deadly rivals. But the blog is genuinely very good. No, I'm, I'm sorry, no. So, I'm sorry, dear listeners. Marty and I don't always see eye to eye on certain subjects, which is strange because, in fact, Marty Orkenschloss here is an expert on sporting rivalries. Though I must stress that I don't see you, Jerry, as a rival. You don't? Well, why is that? There's no need, my dear fellow. There's, there's no need. OK. So, Orkenschloss. That's an interesting name. Any relation to the famous American Orkenschlosses? None, I'm afraid. The Orkenschlosses, for those who don't know, is a prominent American family. Hugh Dudley Orkenschloss is famous for being, well, a famous second husband. He became stepfather to the renowned writer Gore Vidal, and then married Jacqueline Bouvier's mother to become the future Jackie Kennedy Onassis's stepfather. That was back in the 30s and 50s, respectively. Though, Jerry, that's not strictly relevant to our discussion today. Oh, well, yeah, you're right. Anyway... Today, we're going to talk about... Well, I, again, I don't know if I really want to do this episode of the podcast, if I'm honest, Marty. Is it because it's about Arsenal Football Club? Uh, yeah, it is, frankly. And you're a die-hard Tottenham Hotspur fan, aren't you? Indeed, I'm Tottenham till I die, as they sing on the terraces. But being Tottenham till you die, or at least until they kill you, does not stop you from acknowledging that, well, but your North London rivals have been much more successful than you, does it? I mean... It's a fact. The record books are very clear. They've won more than us. Us? At least you'll admit that you're a Spurs supporter too. Um, we do full disclosure on this podcast, by the way. I am a Spurs fan, and I'm proud of it. But let's get to, back to the main subject matter. Yes, sorry. We're going to talk about a film. A very old film. We are. The Arsenal Stadium Mystery. You see, I'm sorry, but that, that does stick in my craw. The fact that they've had a film named after them, and we haven't. Ah, actually, we have. There's the 1983 TV film, Those Glory Glory Days, which is all about the double-winning team of 1960-61, and, of course, Daddy Blancheflower. Right, well, it was pretty good too, wasn't it? It was, and still is. So it's one all when it comes to footy movies, then? Uh, no. Then there's Fever Pitch, based on the Nick Hornby autobiography. Oh, God. OK. 2-1 to the Arsenal on that, then. Indeed. At least it's not their famous 1-0 to the Arsenal chant. Though it can be argued that the Arsenal Stadium mystery, which was made in 1939, was actually the medium which that idea, the idea that Arsenal liked to win 1-0, was first popularised. Really? Listen to this. The score at half-time is Arsenal 1, Trojans no. And that's just how we like it. Right, and who were those actors? Those weren't actors at all. One of them was actually George Allison, the manager of Arsenal Football Club in 1939 when the film was made. 
You're joking. What sets the Arsenal Stadium mystery apart is that it was filmed at Highbury, Arsenal's famous old ground, obviously in, in Islington, North London. Only four miles from the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, or White Hart Lane as I still like to call it. That's right. Let's not get into the fact that the Gunners are actually usurpers. They're a South London team squatting on our patch. Now, that's a subject for another podcast, I think. Well, we're still angry after an entire century of injustice. OK, OK, calm down. We should focus on the film. It's actually considered one of the finest football films ever made. We Actually, you know, we should make the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium mystery, shouldn't we? And that mystery, Jerry, is how on earth do we manage to never quite fulfil our potential as a so-called big club? Well, you don't sound like a Spurs fan. On the contrary, my penchant for lost causes makes me the perfect Spurs fan. OK, all right, I take the point. So, if we must, let's talk about Arsenal. It's my contention that studying the success of your rivals is actually good for you. Well, it just makes me depressed. But that's because you don't approach rivalry in the right way. Well, how should I approach it then? By acknowledging their strengths, studying their successes, and working out why you feel bad when they succeed. Well, it's a bit too dispassionate for me, Marty. A bit too logical. Football isn't logical. Being a football fan isn't logical. No, it isn't. But nor is being a movie buff or any other kind of enthusiast. My point is that you gain strength from focusing on the strengths of your opponent instead of just wishing them away. The only way to be better than them, your opponents, is to understand how to be better than them. OK, well, I, I, I do get the point. So let's talk about the film. It was shot in Denham Studios, which was near Uxbridge, just west of London. The studios were opened in 1936 and were also known as London Studios, created by the famous British film producer Alexander Corder. And it's now flats, right? Luxury apartments, yes. But much of the film is actually set in the Arsenal Stadium itself at Highbury. Hence the title. Yes, hence the title. They didn't create a set for the ground itself. They filmed the football scenes at Highbury, which at the time was the most famous stadium in the country. The West Stand was built in 1932 from a design by the acclaimed architect Claude Waterloo Ferrier. The existing ground had been built by Archibald Leach, who transformed the way stadia were designed throughout the previous decade or so. And of course, your and our beloved White Hart Lane was largely designed by Archibald Leach himself. Really? Right, OK. And I remember Highbury quite well, actually. I mean, it's actually still there, isn't it? As apartments, yes. Uh, apartments, the fate of many great buildings. Oh, indeed. Well, Ferrier himself was known for such buildings in London as the, the Army and Navy Club in Pall Mall, as well as Trafalgar House and Waterloo Place. Check them out on Google. You, you'll see what I mean. Now, if you remember Highbury, it's an impressive building. There you go again. They get the impressive buildings and great teams too. Oh, no, come on. Surely you'll agree the new Spurs stadium is impressive. No, no, I do admit that it is, though it's a matter of taste for many people. So this film was shot at the actual Highbury. Yes, and that was a very big deal in the late 1930s because, and I know you'll hate me for saying it, but Arsenal was the team of the 30s. Yeah, of course they were. Look, they'd won the title three years in a row under the legendary manager Herbert Chapman. So 1933, 34 and 35. God, did they? They did. And they even managed to have a tube station named after them. That was Herbert Chapman's doing. He persuaded the London Underground to change Gillespie Road into Arsenal Stadium. Then not long after that, the stadium part was dropped. 
Chapman was, was a great manager and, frankly, a brilliant promoter of his team. He turned Arsenal into a brand. But, of course, he died just before the third title win in a row. And then George Allison took over and really finished the job. Now, that's the George Allison who acted in the film. The very same. Now, he's an interesting man. Here's a clip of him introducing another real person, the newsreel and sports commentator E.V.H. Kemet, who we actually heard in that first clip. Good afternoon, everybody. This is George Allison calling from the Arsenal Stadium, London. A great day has arrived at last. We were to see this long-anticipated charity match between the Trojans, the famous amateur team, and the Arsenal. He have been fortunate in securing the services of a very famous commentator, I'm perfectly certain you would all recognise the well-known voice of Mr. E.B.H. Emmett, who is appearing today by kind permission of the Gaumont British News. Now, Mr. Emmett, it's up to you to give us all the thrills of the match. Well, I certainly will do my best, and I'm sure it will be a thrilling match. I certainly hope so, because there's a record crowd here, an enormous crowd. The stadium's absolutely packed. I, I really love the accents. Well, George Allison had started out as a sports journalist and commentator. He was one of the pioneering radio commentators of the age. He and his colleague invented the art of live commentary. And that was a time when uh, the BBC was actually still in its infancy, of course. I mean, it was only founded, what, 14 years before it, 1922, October of that year, to be exact. Jerry, absolutely. And of course, live commentaries changed the way the sport was actually consumed in Britain. And that was for football, along with cricket, rugby and horse racing. All of those sports were now accessible to many more people. And in turn, that increased the reach of clubs and sportsmen and sportswomen and began to turn them into celebrities in their own right. And Alison sounds like he's quite a character. He was. There's, there's a really good article by Mike Huggins from 2007. It's published in the journal Contemporary British History, and it charts the rise of sports commentary and how it really unified the nation, to a degree at least. He details how the BBC were careful not to make the commentaries too technical, not too focused on the technicalities of the sport, so that then many more people could actually enjoy them. In your notes that you gave me before we started recording, there's a very interesting quote. Can I read it? Please do. It's George Allison saying that being too technical was a serious fault, as only about 10% of the audience would understand. Secondly, continuity should always be maintained. That was George Allison. Now, an early handbook described that George Allison, a man whose dimensions extended chiefly sideways, so you can understand he was quite fat, and the story is that the 1927 derby, he leant out from the roof of the commentary box and was held by a burly BBC staffer. He continued commentating furiously about the reception of the winner while a colleague went to the unsaddling enclosure. Now, I think that's a great image. Jerry, I, I do like that image, I must say. The portly George Allison hanging by his trousers from the commentary box. I wonder whether Martin Tyler on Sky Sports has ever been in that position. Well, I bet Gary Neville has. Now, that, that's just a rumour. Anyway, if I may, I'll, I'll quote from that article again. George Allison, the football commentator, succeeded in balancing reporting with unbridled enthusiasm, even if occasional cries from the heart alerted listeners to the side he was on. Allison regularly reflected on his commentaries and felt he tried to keep a steely grip on his enthusiasm while conveying incitement through his voice in a way which conveys to the listener a mental photograph of what is taking place. But his commentaries were occasionally sprinkled with exhortations to players to shoot, 
pass or tackle or even cries of excitement such as by jove he occasionally drank a lot of port as well he'd, he'd do that to soothe his throat during the commentary and later he even admitted that sometimes he would invent action just to keep the listener interested during boring games <laughs> i suppose you could do that on the radio now i mean you just make up some stuff when the game is like a, a bore draw or something uh, maybe modern commentators actually do that well it's impossible to do it now i think anyway the film the Arsenal Stadium Mystery was actually based on a crime novel by a once reasonably popular writer called Leonard R. Dribble. Actually, no, um, Marty, I think it's Gribble. I think you've read that wrong. Mr. Gribble, indeed. Actually, he was the one who got permission from Alison and the Arsenal Football Club to use the names of real players in his story. Wrong. Well, that is interesting. So he contacted them with, with the story and they said he could weave the real players into that story. I mean, I think that's a really good idea, actually. An ad for the book in The Observer claimed that it was more thrilling than a cup final. <laughs> Depends on which cup final. Well, that's a good point. And how was the film received at the time? Well, one review commented that it made no great stir in the film world but is, for all that, an encouraging thing. Hmm, it's a bit lukewarm. But it went on to say, one need not be an enthusiast of football to enjoy its excellent football pictures or the ingenuity with which they are fitted into the structure of the film. And that's really the point of us talking about it today. Because it's the only film that has players playing themselves. The only one to do that as part of the very structure of the film. I'm sure it's the only film in which a successful serving manager acts as himself. And actually acts, not well, admittedly, but passingly well. OK, so the book was turned into this film and half of it was shot at Highbury. I mean, who made it? A director called Thorold Dickinson. He was a noted film editor and actually directed a few films which, although they don't stand out as classics, attracted a lot of praise from other filmmakers for their wit and cinematic technique. Thorold, that's a strange name, isn't it? It's an old Norse name for follower of the god Thor. Right, but he's British, right? Yes. He made the first film version of Gaslight, only to see the prince destroyed when the rights were sold to Hollywood. And then, of course, the classic Ingrid Bergman and Charles Boyer version was released, which was 1944. And that became the one that everyone knows. Dickinson kept his own print of his original, and it's actually much darker and more cinematic by all accounts. OK, so is the Arsenal Stadium mystery a dark film? Not at all. It's surprisingly witty. In fact, it's very British in terms of its humour. And what's the story? Well, a bit silly really, but that's what makes it so charming. The film starts with a fake newsreel announcing a charity game between the mighty Arsenal and an amateur team called the Trojans. Trojans? I know what you're going to say. Isn't that an American brand of condoms? Well, it is, isn't it? Well, it is. And curiously, the condoms were launched in 1916, so there might actually have been some sly humour going on somewhere. Anyway, we see the Arsenal players in the newsreel, and then we pull back to see the real players watching the screen, and then we're introduced to the Arsenal team. Eddie Hapgood, left back and Arsenal captain. Bryn Jones, he cost Arsenal as much as a war, and he's almost a dangerous. Leslie Jones, another international. Cliff Bastin, the boy wonder. Football is the only game he ever wants to play. I don't know what my wife will say. The three musketeers, Alf Fields, Preston, and George Mayo. The one and only George Allison. Mind you, don't lose that type in. <laughs> Kershon, a streak of lightning on the right wing. Bremner, born with a silver football in his mouth, but he busted. Ted Drake, centre forward, tall, dark, and handsome. Swindon, the goalkeeper, still in his winter woolen. And Tom Whitaker, their famous trainer. Those are famous names, aren't they? They certainly are. 
Ted Drake, Cliff Bastin, Gordon Bremner, Bryn Jones, Leslie Jones, George Mayle and Alfred Kirchen, to name just a few. And of course, George Allison. And Allison, as well as Tom Whitaker, who became Arsenal manager in 1947 when Allison retired and then promptly went and won the league himself in 1948. Oh, God, not again. But you know what? They did it again under him in 1953. Plus, they won the FA Cup in 1950. Oh, right, OK. Jerry, is this getting too painful? It's a bit painful, Marty. But it's, it's all so long ago. Uh, it doesn't matter how long ago it is. For a football fan, history always hurts. Or brings joy. Well, it depends on who you support. So, this film starts with a charity match, right? Yes, and you see the teams getting ready and then a real match being played between Arsenal and, in disguise, Brentford. In disguise? <laughs> That's good. Are you so-and-so in disguise is an ironic chant we hear at many games. Well, this was Brentford in disguise. They were the Trojans in long shot and then the close-ups were done from a low angle with, with the actors and then cleverly intercut with the action. So the, the crowd is real. I mean, they didn't just turn up for the filming and be extras on the terraces, right? No, no, no. The, the, the match itself took place. It's a fascinating insight into what crowds look like, Len. Mostly men, of course. Most of them in hats or flat caps. Some with rosettes and rattles. Most intently watching the game. A pretty good pitch for the time. And then, of course, that dark, heavy leather ball. It's all played at a very fast pace. Lots of attacking moves. Herbert Chapman was famous for describing the best football as being focused on, as he put it, rapier-like attacks and constant movement. Ah, oh, so you do know something about the subject. Well, I prefer Bill Nicholson, but you've got to accept that Chapman was a trailblazer. Well, he certainly brought many innovations to the game, and even tried ones that took a long time to be accepted, like, like floodlights and a white ball, so that the crowd could follow the action better on muddy pitches in gloomy conditions. OK, so he was a great football innovator. I, I will give him that. Well, that's really big of you, Jerry. And don't forget, he actually played 42 games for Spurs as a player as well. He didn't. He did. All right, then. I never knew that. So, the story. There's a rivalry established between two of the Trojan players over a glamorous girl, an advertising model as she's called, and then one of them collapses on the pitch, fatally poisoned. Then of course it's time to call in Scotland Yard and bring in the famous Inspector Slade. So we cut to a big hall at the yard and policemen dancing in tutus. Tutus? The kind ballet dancers wear, yes, and they're rehearsing a show. Sounds bizarre. And amusing. This clip will give you a flavour of the scene. Ladies, ladies, these skirts weren't provided for you by nature. They are meant to enhance your beauty and to allure. You must swish them about a bit and make them look attractive. Do you follow me? Yes, yes sir. We've only got your Wednesday, ladies. The fair name of the Metropolitan Police Beauty Chorus is at stake. Now, you've got to make it alluring. Now, follow me. Yes, Clinton? What is it? I thought you were at the yard. Yes? A case, Inspector. A case? But, man, I've only got four days to get this show, and I can't take a case now. The Assistant Commissioner thinks it might be a murder. Oh. You know, you oughtn't to be doing all this, sir. These men will never be the same again. Oh, that's something to be thankful for. Where's the, um, where's the body? 
down to the Arsenal Stadium, one of the players. Of the Arsenal? Let's see. Yes, this it is. <laughs> you haven't seen this one before, have you? Not bad for ten, Bob. Guaranteed to put any suspected disease at first sight. You and your hat, sir. Well, it's very suitable. That's so British. And Inspector Slade, brilliantly played by the actor Leslie Banks, dives into the case and, of course, he solves it. What's that about the hat? Well, that's one of his quirks. He chooses a different hat depending on his mood or the stage of the investigation. He does one complete scene with George Allison, which works really well. Here, here it is. Rayo was right. So Doyce was murdered. Yes, that search was a blind. Clinton won't find a thing. Whoever killed Doyce got rid of whatever it was ages ago. He's lying about the stadium somewhere, waiting till the murderer sees his chance to get it back. Oh, good heavens. I suppose you want half the yard down here now looking for clues. Not on your life. I wait for the clues to come to me. Now listen, George, uh, do you mind me calling you George? Not at all. Now, no. about this girl, uh, what did she look like? Oh, she was tall, fair, very pretty. And you know, both the Commissioner and myself are convinced we've seen her somewhere before. What is she wearing? Oh, a long white coat with blue trimmings. A funny sort of hat oh. with a feather in it. Well, like you had there. I thought this is a model. So, what happens next? Well, the plot has got the usual twists and turns, and then we get to a point where a trap is set to catch the murderer when they replay the match. The murdered player was poisoned when he nicked his thumb on a returned engagement ring, which had a strange new poison on it. So Slade sets a trap and puts powder on a jar in the treatment room where that ring is hidden, so that it gets onto the hands of the guilty man and turns it black, like ink. It's a bit silly, but when it happens during the match, it actually works as a sequence. And the guilty man gets caught, of course. He does, and he's arrested during the match. Cleverly, they use different parts from the Arsenal v Brentford match that they used at the start. I mean, I know you've said it, but that was a real match. I mean, that was actually a league match. Yes, a league match, and it happened to be the very last league match played at Highbury before the war which of course broke out in September 1939 at the start of the new season. And of course, Jerry, as you all know, during World War II, Arsenal played their football at White Hart Lane. Amazing. Did they? They did. Oh. Well, the film, it might not be a classic, but it has got some great scenes. I like the humour. At the end, Slade goes back to his first love, producing the Metropolitan Police Review. But one scene really sticks out for me. It's when George Allison talks tactics for the match with his players, and they're all in very natty suits. And it has been actually very fascinating, Marty. I, I really want to see that film now. Even though it's Arsenal? Well, but it's black and white Arsenal. That's not so painful. You're a magnanimous fellow, Jerry. Well, thank you, Marty. And thanks for enlightening us on what is perhaps the best football movie ever made. It's been a pleasure. And thank you, dear listeners, for your time. If you get a chance to see the film... Take it, even if you are a Spurs fan or a supporter of anyone, including Arsenal. At least you're not from North Mims. Goodbye, bastards. Bastards. <laughs>